0: Incoming transmission.
1: Welcome. 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 This is True Spies. The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Week by week, you'll hear the true stories behind the operations that have shaped the world we live in.
0: True Spies.
1: You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies.
0: It was an area where there was a lot of fighting. If you get into crossfire, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or you're not Jewish, it doesn't matter. Bullet is a bullet.
1: I'm Sofia DiMartino, and this is True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Exodus. Ethiopia, 1976. The country is convulsed by civil war. Since taking power in a bloody coup, the ruling Marxist military junta, known as the Derg, has waged a campaign of red terror against a swathe of opposition groups, ranging from anti-communists to Eritrean separatists. No one is safe. And there's one group in particular danger from their Christian and Muslim neighbors. An ethnic minority unknown to most of the world. Up until the Civil War, they had lived in an uneasy coexistence with their fellow citizens. But now their very existence was a target. Their name? Beta Israel. or the black Jews of Ethiopia.
2: We face the anti-Semitism there. Very... Horrible anti-Semitism. They quarreled, you are a dirty Jewish, you are not belong to Ethiopia, what are you doing here? So if you are not very, very strong, they can and uh, kill you.
1: With enemies on all sides, the beta-Israel community grows
2: desperate. We said we have to find a way to run away from Ethiopia. The main agenda. Just we have to live, we have to be free, we have to be with the Jewish state. But fortunately, they have a powerful ally,
1: the Mossad, Israel's foreign intelligence service. In this three-part special, True Spies retells one of the greatest covert operations of all time, Israel's rescue of the Ethiopian Jews. If this is sounding familiar… It's probably because we covered this mission in the very first episode of True Spies, Operation Brothers. But we thought the story deserved a full in-depth treatment. And trust us, it's worth revisiting.
3: The Mossad had never been involved in anything quite as unique as what they did here. And they've never done anything quite like it since.
1: We'll hear how the scribbled note of one man changed the course of Jewish history.
3: He pawned his wedding ring for a notepad and pen
2: and sent a telegram.
1: We'll hear from the Ethiopian Jews themselves.
2: You have to be very, very careful to hide your identity.
1: And from the true spies who made it happen.
0: The door opens and two guys, each one with a pistol, jump out, and one pushes me against the wall, and he puts the gun like this in front of my nose, and starts shouting in Arabic. Part
1: 1. The Telegram. From Ethiopia and civil war to Israel 1977, and a changing of the old for the new, Menachem Begin is swept to power after nearly 30 years in opposition.
3: Israel had never seen a prime minister quite like him.
1: This is Rafi Berg, the Middle East editor at the BBC. He has covered Israel for several decades. Begin was indeed unlike any previous Israeli prime minister.
3: One of Begin's most important motivations was the ingathering of Jews from all four corners of the world didn't matter to him what color the skin was or where they came from. To him, it was important that Israel serve as a sanctuary for Jews under threat. In fact, in his first speech in the Knesset, he referenced the Holocaust where countries around the world and in Europe left the Jews to their fate. And he said, I'm not going to do that.
1: Shortly after becoming prime minister, Begin held a secret meeting with the head of the Mossad, Yitzhak Hakka, Hoffi. Bring me the Ethiopian Jews, Begin says.
3: And that was quite extraordinary. No such order, a humanitarian order, had been given by any prime minister before to the head of the Mossad.
1: What made the order even more extraordinary was that Israeli prime ministers up until then had mostly ignored the Ethiopian Jews.
3: Part of that is, unfortunately discrimination. Israel's no different to any other country in the world. Israel had other problems to deal with. You know, it was a new country. It was fighting for its existence.
1: But in 1973, the tide turned. One of Israel's top two rabbis finally declared Beta Israel authentic Jews, one of the ten lost tribes. Tekele Mekonnen is one of them.
2: We arrived in Ethiopia after the destruction of the first temple, before 2,700 years. And uh, we suffered a lot. The Jewish identity is very important for me, and we are in Ethiopia temporary. temporarily. So we have to be one day in Jerusalem. We'll come to the promised land.
1: The Mossad had its orders, bring the Ethiopian Jews to Prime Minister Begin. However, It was not at all clear whether that was even possible. But then the Mossad spotted an opening. In July 1977, neighboring Somalia invaded Ethiopia, adding yet another front to the conflict. Meanwhile, the Derg's main backer in the war, the US, pulled all military aid to the country.
3: Out of objection to Ethiopia's appalling human rights record,
1: And besides, backing a Marxist regime wasn't exactly the American way.
3: So the Derg needed to replace the US support, and they turned to Israel for help.
1: Knowing that Israel had one of the most advanced militaries in the world, Ethiopia's president, Mengistu Haile Mariam, sent a classified message to Mossad headquarters.
0: He wanted us to send fighting planes bomber planes to bomb the Somali positions.
1: This is the Mossad intelligence officer who picked up that message, Danny Lamour. Danny was no typical Mossad agent, if such a thing exists.
0: I wanted to be a doctor, but uh, you know, one thing is uh, what you want and the other thing is what happens in reality. But actually, I found myself uh, serving in the in a combat unit, the paratroopers, and then Mossad did not exist even in my imagination.
1: Serving as an officer in the 1973 Yom Kippur conflict, Danny was well-versed
0: in the horrors of war. I participated in the Southern Front, and I saw soldiers of mine and friends of mine uh, killed in action. I was even wounded.
1: Eventually, Danny was invited to an interview with an unnamed contact at an unnamed organization.
0: And he made a proposition. I'm not going to uh, detail this proposition, but he made a proposition and I I thought about it about uh, one and a half minute. And I said, yes, okay. <laughs> he was so <laughs> surprised. He said, what? You don't want to consult with someone? You have a girlfriend or someone, your parents maybe? I said, no, it's okay. So, yes, the answer is yes. And with that,
1: Danny was in the Mossad.
0: And then once you're inside, you know, even after you retire, you continue.
1: But Danny wasn't a company man. Raised in Uruguay, he only came to Israel aged 16 through the Youth Aliyah, a relocation scheme for young Jews in danger around the world.
0: When I uh, came to Israel, And as I was alone, I was in a boarding school, so, you know, I was sharing the room with uh, Jews from originally from Iraq, Yemen, uh, Morocco, and so on. It was a great uh, discovery for me. I realized that this uh, mosaic is part of our strength, of our uh, history, of our uh, tradition.
1: Knowing that a long-overlooked part of that mosaic was now calling for help, Danny takes the message to his boss, a legendary Mossad spy called Dr. David Kimchi.
0: He saw an opportunity to carry out Begin's order.
1: So Danny and Kimchi go to see the head of the Mossad, Yitzhak Hofi, the man who Begin had personally ordered to bring him the Ethiopian Jews. Almost immediately, Hofi tells Kimchi to go to Ethiopia to meet personally with Mengistu.
0: He said, OK, he wants this, he wants that. We will give him something, but in return, we will get Ethiopian Jews.
1: But Kimchi wants another agent to go with him.
3: He wanted somebody who wouldn't strictly obey orders, who would be able to think for himself, somebody who was creative, had ideas, had determination.
1: He picks Danny. The next night, Danny and Kimchi fly to Addis Ababa on an unmarked military plane.
0: We had a meeting with Mengistu at the uh, Imperial Palace, who used to belong to the kings of Ethiopia. And when we entered the room and he showed us where to sit, he says, well, a week ago, Fidel Castro was sitting in that chair. So he did a military salute and I said, yeah, well... I read everything that Che Guevara wrote at the time.
1: As the meeting progresses, Kimchi begins to outwit the president.
0: He really um, gave me a lesson not to forget how you negotiate with a head of state. Uh, Mengistu was not uh, the brightest light, so um, it came down to okay, we will supply you with uh, ammunition and small arms, and every plane that comes with this uh, material comes back with Jews. Kimchi gets his wish,
1: without agreeing to bomb Somali targets.
0: We supplied those really small arms, not even more than machine gun. I mean, nothing heavy.
1: Within a month, another unmarked Israeli military plane landed in Ethiopia. Its mission was so secretive that even the pilots did not know what they were transporting. After dropping off its light cargo of machine guns, the plane took off. Only on the return leg, the machine guns were replaced by 63 Ethiopian Jews. In December 1977, the exercise was repeated, this time with 61 of the Beta Israel people ...being taken to the Promised Land. Israel's Prime Minister Begin was overjoyed. They had a system, albeit small, secret... ...through which to bring the Ethiopian Jews home. A couple of months later, though, that system was blown apart. Not by the Ethiopian government... ...but by the Israeli foreign minister himself.
0: He was in Zurich in the airport and uh, some journalist asked him, is it true that you are helping militarily uh, this uh, regime in, in Ethiopia? The minister pauses. And of course he could have said no. But he chose to say yes, we do.
1: As the news breaks, President Mengistu's allies are outraged.
0: All the neighbors and the supporters and so on, what? Are you, you're you getting arms from the Zionists. Uh, Stayed and blah, blah, blah.
1: Humiliated, Mengistu orders all Israeli personnel to leave the country within 24 hours, the same personnel he had previously invited to fight the rebels.
3: It also meant that Israel's hopes of extracting a larger number of Ethiopian Jews suddenly came to an abrupt end.
1: The plan to rescue the beta-Israel Jews is now back at square one. Undeterred and with Begin's order still live, the Mossad send Danny back to Ethiopia several months later. Undercover.
3: Well, you often hear the expression, the right person at the right time. This is exactly what happened here. There was no rule book. Danny operated. Really, he winged it. Which may sound a bit odd because, you know, we're talking about Mossad in the field. Yes, they have modus operandi, but it was uncharted territory. So Danny had to literally write the instruction book as he went along. He thought on his feet.
1: And Danny's cover was a good one.
0: I wonder an inspector for the ORT.
1: The ORT, or the Organization for Rehabilitation Through Training. It is a global education network building schools around the world. It is also a Jewish organization. A Jewish organization... President Mengistu still allowed to operate within Ethiopia.
0: He had a soft spot towards Israel. Why? Because his father used to be one of the officers of the Imperial Guard, the Royal Guard of Haile Selassie. So his father had a stroke and the one who saved his life was the Israeli doctor. Danny
1: makes two trips to Ethiopia posing as an ORT inspector.
0: To see how, you know, the schools were performing at these uh, very dire times.
1: But while the ORT were still allowed to operate within Ethiopia, the reception toward Israel and Jews across the country was growing ever more hostile under Derg rule.
0: The last uh, king of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie, and they assassinated him and they took over and they took Ethiopia from the Western world to the Soviet world, which made things much worse because there was a presence of all those uh, intelligence uh, agencies like the uh, KGB and the Stasi, and even the Cubans were there, and uh, at the time, even North Koreans. there was a huge presence of all the all the friends of Israel, shall I say all
1: the friends of Israel. Expect to hear a few remarks like that from Danny.
3: A dry sense of humour, but he has a sense of humour. In fact, he said he couldn't have uh, survived this operation without a sense of humour.
1: But humour or not, Danny's task seemed impossible. No one knew anything about the Ethiopian Jews, not least how many there were or where they all were.
0: We are an intelligence agency, and we didn't have any kind of... Intelligence about it. Ethiopia is a huge country which has um, very difficult terrain, you know, mountains and valleys, and it's like a fortress. And I heard so many different numbers, you know, someone told me, yeah, there are about 20, 30,000. Another guy I said, no, 50,000, no, 100,000.
1: Eventually, however, the ORT guide took Danny to several known Jewish villages.
0: Without a guide, I probably would have been still looking for the villages right now. Because there were no signs, no roads, not even dirt roads.
1: After scouting the Jewish regions for any possible evacuation strategies, Danny returns to Israel and briefs his boss, David Kimchi.
0: I must say, I personally, I recommended not to do anything in Ethiopia.
1: The country was too volatile, too dangerous, Danny told his superiors.
0: Moving people from one place to another was very, very dangerous and physically difficult because of the terrain and because, uh, you know, everywhere you went there were some hostile people. There were bandits, they were uh, deserters from the army, Eritrean liberation movements that blocked the access to the Red Sea anyway, if we wanted to evacuate people, that was impossible.
1: And while thousands of refugees were fleeing Ethiopia for neighboring Sudan, no Jews were known to have made the journey.
3: However dangerous it was for Jews in Ethiopia in the 1970s, it was more dangerous for them to be in Sudan. Sudan was a Islamist country. It was an avowed enemy of Israel. It had participated in the Arab wars against Israel and in the wake of the 1967 war, the Arab League met in Khartoum, and they declared the three no's, which was no to recognition of Israel, no to peace with Israel, and no to negotiations with Israel. So to be Zionist in Sudan was effectively a death sentence.
1: Danny's superiors agree. Evacuating the beta Israel from Ethiopia was simply not possible. We were stuck. While Mossad was at a loss at what to do, the situation for many of the Beta Israel was becoming ever more desperate, not least for one of their local leaders, a man by the name of Faraday Aklum.
3: Faraday Aklum was an Ethiopian Jew, but he was more than that, he was a Zionist. And in his younger days, He had tried to leave the country to get to Israel himself. But he was thought, nevertheless, it didn't stop him being a pro-Israel activist. But this was an extremely dangerous thing to be in Ethiopia at that time.
1: What made Faraday even more suspicious to both the Derg and the rebels was his lack of public support for either.
3: He didn't take sides in the conflict, even though where he lived was one of the main centres of the rebellion. So the rebels were suspicious of Faraday because he didn't want to become involved. And the regime was suspicious of Faraday because they suspected he was working for the rebels. And they also suspected him of Zionist activity. So he became a targeted man.
1: The Derg issue a warrant for Faraday's arrest, a likely death sentence in 1978 Ethiopia. And now he's on the run.
3: had to leave his home, his wife, his newborn baby, and flee for his life.
1: After going from village to village evading the authorities, Faraday concludes he has only one option, an option unthinkable before.
3: The only place he could go for relative safety was another country, and that country was Sudan. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered
1: The journey was notoriously dangerous. Officially, the Ethiopian-Sudan border was closed. Bandits roamed the region preying on fleeing refugees. Gunrunners went back and forth supplying the Tigrayan rebels. But in that, Faraday saw an opportunity and paid one of the smugglers to take him across the border.
3: Sudan was, in those days, the biggest country in Africa. Faraday made this journey by foot, an extraordinarily long journey of hundreds of kilometres, a terribly arduous journey through jungle, through mountains, across rivers, exposing himself to scorching
1: heat. After five days, in late 1978, Faraday arrived at a refugee camp just across the border. From there, he moved on to another on the outskirts of the Sudanese capital, Khartoum.
0: To call them refugee camps would be a great compliment. There was no camp, no running water, no food, no hygiene, and nothing, you know, it was really living hell. Exhausted
1: and starving, Faraday begged for food and money. He slept in an old car yard.
3: He went into hiding. He didn't really have a plan.
1: Faraday had only two possessions left. His gold wedding ring, hidden in his shoe, and a notebook. But in the notebook, however, Faraday had something highly unusual, something potentially highly valuable.
3: Faraday, he was known by Jewish humanitarian organizations in Europe because he had previously helped with the first evacuation of a small number of Jews.
1: In his notebook, Faraday had written down the telephone numbers of three of these organisations.
3: He pawned his wedding ring for a notepad and pen, and so he wrote to three of them and sent a telegram.
1: My name is Faraday Yazizao Eklung. I am in Khartoum. I ran away from Ethiopia. You know why. Send me a ticket to Europe or the USA. Below he put the address of a Khartoum PO box to send the ticket to and waited. A few days later, one of the telegrams landed on the desk of an official at a Jewish relief agency in Geneva. Immediately, the official rang his contact at the Mossad, one Danny Lamour.
0: And this is where the story begins.
1: Danny goes to his boss Kimchi, arguing that someone should go and meet with whoever this Faraday is.
0: The fact that the people. In the different corners of the world, sometimes not even being in contact with each other, kept doing the same things at the same times. And first of all, makes you think, and uh, you realize that you know this is you. Doesn't matter if the, the other guy is black or he looks totally different than you. But he, you are him, and he is you.
1: Both Danny and Kimchi know that this is an opportunity they cannot pass up.
3: All well, at once, it dawned on them that. This could be the answer to the conundrum because they've been left facing a brick wall as to how to get Jews out of Ethiopia. And it occurred to them that if a Jew had managed to hide in Sudan and make that terrible journey and survive, then this could be a gateway for more Jews to follow in this person's footsteps.
1: After presenting the intel to the head of the Mossad, Yitzhak Hofi, a meeting is arranged. The sole item on the agenda? Who should go to Sudan to track down Faraday Aklum? Danny was desperate to be that man. Danny arrives at the meeting having not shaved for several weeks. He'd only just returned from another assignment in Nigeria and didn't feel the urge to clean up. As the meeting progresses, Hoffi rejects all the names proposed to him. Then he turns to Danny... Saying, how about this guy if he shaves? With Kimchi's support, everyone agrees.
0: He thought well about me. He thought that I could uh, face situations um, which are an unknown quantity and, you know, try to navigate those troubled waters or whatever you want to call it and, you know, try to get something out of it. Sudan was a uh, really unknown quantity, it was an enemy country. Danny replies,
1: for this, I'm willing to shave my whole head.
0: All my life, since the moment I came to Israel as a young man, I always felt that whatever I do, first of all, I'm, I'm willing to pay the price.
1: And there's another reason he is the right man for the job, although his superiors don't ever mention it.
3: If Danny wanted to defy an order because he thought it was the right thing to do, he was prepared to do that, even if it meant putting him at risk of losing his livelihood.
1: Danny messages the relief agency official back, telling him to reply to Faraday's PO box. Four words are sent back to the man who is almost out of hope. Wait, someone will come. Three weeks later, Danny was in the air, alone. He didn't even know what Faraday looked like, The only intel he had was the P.O. box address.
0: Which was not easy because he was not living inside the P.O. box.
1: Knowing what was at stake though, Danny was unfazed. Posing as an anthropologist, he secures a Sudanese visa with a forged sponsorship letter from a French university. I'd love to tell you which one, but that's classified. Armed only with that and the P.O. box address in Khartoum, he got to work.
0: I went to the mail office in Khartoum and I um, positioned myself so that I could see the PO box and my idea was to wait until someone opens it because I didn't know how it looked like and they said, OK, you will come to, to look for mail or something.
1: Before long, Danny realises what he's up against.
0: I was in the middle of the hall, looking at a certain direction. But I heard and I understand Arabic, so I understood that they were looking at me with suspicion. So I said, OK, I cannot stay there because I can be easily arrested and these people, they don't play games.
1: But as a white man, not attracting attention in late 70s Sudan was likely to be impossible.
3: Sudan was also Islamist, so it didn't tolerate Western influences and it was very suspicious of Westerners to say the least. There were no tourists, no visitors, only some businessmen would operate in Sudan. But this was always under the watch of the Sudanese intelligence agency, whose agents were on the prowl everywhere, plain clothed, nobody knew who was being watched.
1: Hanging around drawing attention to himself at a PO box is no longer an option. So Danny has to
0: improvise. I didn't know anything about Khartoum or nothing. So first of all, it took me a few days to understand how Khartoum uh, functioned as the capital. And so um, I started to uh, look around uh, to think about where I could find him.
1: Eventually, Danny locates the refugee camp bordering the city. Entering it, he realizes he can comb through the entire camp systematically.
0: It was mainly rows of huts. and It was um, geometrically OK, I mean, straight lines. And so you could actually go walk in those dirt roads. There was, there was no asphalt. And so I started going to go into each shop. I couldn't go into each hut, of course, but I concentrated on shops. From morning to
1: nightfall, in each shop, he asks if the owner knows a Faraday Aklum.
0: The answer is no, was no, was no.
1: And then finally, a week into his exercise, Danny gets a different reaction in one shop.
0: Which was a, a shop that sold wigs. There was a guy sitting there and I, thought, I asked him my question.
1: The shopkeeper looks up at this stranger. After a moment, he replies, why do you ask?
0: So I knew that maybe I had found someone who knows.
1: Danny tells the shopkeeper that he has just seen Faraday's wife. He has a gift from her, which he needs to give Faraday personally.
0: So if you see him, you tell him that I'll be waiting for him at this hotel from six to seven in the evening. And uh, of course, I said there I was the only white man. Easy to identify.
1: That night... Danny goes to the veranda of the aforementioned hotel, the Blue Nile, overlooking the river. But he spots nobody who fits the description. The next night, however...
0: I saw a guy who clearly was not Sudanese, was either Ethiopian or Eritrean, and he came up the stairs to the veranda, went around the tables, didn't make eye contact with me, then he went out. Unsure whether it was
1: Faraday or not, Danny goes back again the following night.
0: Again, he came. This time it was a brief, very short eye contact, but without any signs of recognition or something like that. So uh, once he finished his tour, doing, went back through the stairs going to the street, I went up behind him and he was already walking and I called him by his name.
1: The man doesn't stop. Danny runs to catch up with him.
0: And I said, are you so-and-so? Did you ask for a ticket because I'm your ticket?
1: The man stops, turning to Danny, he says, and who are you?
0: I said I was Jewish from a European country. (laughs) I was sent here, I didn't say by the state of Israel, I was sent by a Jewish community in Europe to help Ethiopian Jews uh, somehow to leave Ethiopia.
1: The man's eyes light up. Now Danny knew. It was Faraday a Aklum.
0: So I told him, look, I cannot do that alone. There's no way I can do this alone. So I'm asking you to stay with me and uh, eventually you will get a ticket uh, to whatever you want.
1: Saying that he must get to Israel, Faraday agrees to help. But he's not sure how. He has met no other Jews in Sudan.
3: It's extraordinary if you think about it. The only known Jewish person in Sudan at that time was Faraday Klum.
1: The two men decide to scour the refugee camps across Sudan, looking for Jews. Danny bribes a local for his Land Rover defender.
0: At the time, they called the, it the mechanical camel. You just fill them up and they will go anywhere. And
1: the two of them set off ready to cross the vast expanse of the Sudanese desert. They've barely gone 20 kilometers when they hit trouble.
0: So we came to our first roadblock uh, soldier with a kalachniko. It makes a sign for me to stop. So he asks for papers. I give him my passport.
1: Danny hands over his identification. The soldier's eyes flick between the papers and their owner.
0: And so I I got back my passport, politely, and I said, "Okay, thank you, in Arabic. And I did like I was going to move, but then he pointed his gun towards Faraday and said, you come with me. Danny
1: knows he cannot let that happen.
0: They have the guns. And an Ethiopian, for them, is less than an animal. So they can do to him whatever they want. They can kill him on the spot.
1: In Arabic, Danny tells the soldier that his passenger is going nowhere. The exchange grows heated. Other troops begin to approach the jeep.
0: he said, no, no. And he started, you know, moving the gun and, you know, making uh, noises like he was going to shoot.
1: Danny starts yelling at the soldier.
0: I said, he's not going with you. And then I started really shouting at him, you go and call the commander.
1: Hesitating, the soldier turns around and heads for the command
0: tent. I let him, you know, go In at a certain moment I just uh, <laughs> stepped on the gas and sh-
1: Accelerating past the roadblock, Danny steals himself for gunfire.
0: And if he would have fired, maybe uh, we won't be here talking. But that's a risk I was willing to take and uh, he didn't. He didn't shoot, he didn't fire.
1: Retreating into the bush, Danny and Faraday must devise a new plan.
0: The first thing is, we cannot stop at the roadblock. Because if we stop, that's it, we will be uh, exposed. And if we don't want to stop at the roadblock, we cannot drive during daylight. So you work only by night and you never stop at the roadblock. And that became the modus operandi. Visiting the
1: camps some 400 kilometres drive... Danny waited outside while Faraday went in.
0: He knew how to recognize, he knew what type of questions to ask.
1: But still, he could find no Jews. And there was another issue.
0: Once you leave Khartoum, there's no gas station.
1: At least no commercial gas stations. There was somewhere to fuel up, but it was a risk.
0: The um, military governor's camp,
1: Reluctantly, Danny begins refueling there. The first few times, he goes in and out without a problem. Eventually, though, he attracts attention.
0: I was playing with a small game, these Nintendo games. Because you get bored, the queuing, you can take two, three hours. A sergeant he comes by and sees. And he called me and told me, you come with me.
1: Danny follows the sergeant into the main building. There, he's confronted by the military governor himself.
0: I was holding my little screen game, and uh, the sergeant tells the officer, he says to the officer, I caught him transmitting.
1: Feigning that he couldn't speak Arabic, Danny asks if the governor speaks English, French, any European language. In English, the governor asks him to place the device on the table. Danny does as instructed. Immediately the officer can tell it is not a transmitter, but he is still unsure
0: of this white man. And then he asks me uh, if I have a permit from the Ministry of Interior or something to be here at all, because this is considered the military area and you need a special permit to be in this area.
1: Danny says he's never heard of such a permit.
0: And he says, but how come? They didn't stop you at the roadblocks?
1: They just waved me through, Danny replies.
0: I said, "Eh, no, they always make like this with the hand. I said they thought they were saying hello. So I said also, hello, and I continued, (laughs) which made him laugh.
1: Sensing an opportunity, Danny explains his work as an anthropologist. Eventually, the governor agrees to issue the permit on the spot. Then he asks where Danny usually sleeps when out here in the desert.
0: So I said, uh, well, usually I sleep out in the field or there was a, something that the locals called hotel, but actually it was like a building where refugees were renting a bed for the night. The governor is shocked. He said, you, I am forbidding you to sleep there because you might be killed. And I don't want any European guy killed in my area under my responsibility.
1: From now on, you were to sleep at the barracks whenever visiting the area, the governor says. Danny could hardly believe it.
0: I said, okay, during at least three months, this was my, my home, if you want to call it. We, came, we became friendly.
1: Operating from the barracks, Danny links up with Faraday to continue their search, but still nothing. By this time, Danny had had no communication with the Mossad for two months.
0: Communication between headquarters and field was very elementary, for many reasons. Nothing was digitalized yet. I mean, there was no even computers.
1: Not long after, Danny is back in the governor's office.
0: I came to say hello when he was sitting there, and then I thought, there was always many phones on his desk, I said, Which one of these phones actually works? The governor points to one of the
1: hand dials.
0: He said, do you think um, from here we can call Paris?
1: We can try, the governor replies. Danny hands him
0: a phone number. A few minutes later, ring, ring. I've got the guy on the other side. (laughs) Danny picks up the receiver.
1: On the other end, he can hear the electronically distorted voice of a Mossad colleague.
0: And uh, he says, Oh, you're okay. Have you found any merchandise?
1: He asks. Not yet, Danny replies. But then the voice says something that makes the blood drain from Danny's face.
0: Dad wants to see you. Urgently. Dad meaning my boss wants to see me urgently, that means I have to leave and go back to Israel, through Europe.
1: The mission was over. Danny's time was up. Next time on True Spies, Danny is fighting to save both the mission
0: and his accomplice. I go back to the car and as I exit the building, in front of my eyes I see Further being dragged by the collar of his shirt by a uh, policeman, and immediately I saw that he was going to the police headquarters. While
1: rumors begin to spread of a way out for the Ethiopian Jews,
2: in the beginning of 1980, we hear that Jews from Tigray region arrived to Sudan and come to Jerusalem, and we said that that is our chance. And the Mossad stumble across a potential escape route.
0: We started uh, going northward along the coast. And we see, like, these nice bungalows with red uh, tile uh, roofs.
1: That's next time on True Spies. I'm Sofia Di Martino. Join us next week for the second installment of True Spies, Exodus.